Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Hosea chapter 9. As we've mentioned before, scholars generally recognize three sections in the book of Hosea. Chapters 1 to 3 contain most of the biographical information and thus the main similes for which the book of Hosea is so well known. That's where we learn that God is like the husband of a whoring wife and like a father who adopts children not his own. And that too is where we learn about the main problem which we learn about through these similes. Israel is a whore at heart. Israel is incapable of faithfulness. She's broken somehow and powerfully attracted to that which is dangerous and false. Chapters 4 to 11 contain a lengthy indictment wherein God details all the idolatries and betrayals of Israel. And then the last section, running from chapter 12 through chapter 14, provide some historical illustrations and a final call to authentic repentance. Here in chapter 9, then, we're obviously still in that middle section wherein God is pronouncing judgment and detailing the various reasons for it. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Derek Kidner gives this whole section from verses 1 to 6, the heading, The party is over. I think that's exactly right. The prophet is saying that this long era of patience and permission wherein God called out to the people and the people disregarded his gentle appeals is now over. Judgment is coming. Discipline is now required. Israel is like the teenager staging a drunken party in his home while his parents are away on holidays. But father has come home unexpectedly and has pulled the plug on the stereo, flipped the lights on, poured all the alcohol into the sink, and brought things to a crashing halt. The party is over, and a season of severe consequences is about to begin. Israel has been enjoying the good life. It sounds like this oracle was delivered during the Festival of Booths, or at least what passed for the Festival of Booths in northern Israel. Jeroboam I had made a number of religious alterations when the nation split away from Judah. They could obviously not go down to Jerusalem any longer to worship, so they made alternative arrangements. Jeroboam created a feast very much like the Feast of Booths, and it took place one month later than the feast in Jerusalem. And it was more or less a harvest festival combining elements of what we would identify as Jewish worship with elements of Canaanite pagan worship. 
It was a time of feasting and drinking and debauchery, which they had the gall to mix with aspects of traditional Jewish worship. This would be like saying the Lord's Prayer before engaging in a pagan ritual. It was disgusting. It was debauched. And God says, it's coming to an end now. The prophet says that God is sending you into exile. Verse 3 says, Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Egypt, of course, is a metaphor for exile and bondage. Their coming experience in Assyria is described in comparison to their previous experience in Egypt. Like that, it will involve servitude, poverty, humiliation, and degradation. There won't be any worship there. You won't be able to mix in the good with the bad there. It will be all bad there. You will eat unclean food in Assyria. Verse 4. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only, it shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? Again, the point here is that God is putting a stop to this degraded and adulterated form of worship. They had sought to mix pure elements with pagan elements, and God is putting a stop to it. You brought the pagan into worship, and therefore I am sending you into the land of pagans. If that's what you want, then that is what you will get. Unmixed, unbroken, unadulterated paganism. Eat that for a lifetime or two, and then we'll talk. That's what the prophet is saying here. Verse 6. For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The meaning of this verse is relatively easy to understand, but some of the various symbols and images are debated. Again, Egypt is a symbol throughout the book for exile. Memphis, of course, was the capital city of the old kingdom of Egypt, situated at the apex of the Nile Delta. So the prophet could just be saying that they will be embraced by exile and swallowed up by foreign powers. Or the imagery could be more specific. Memphis was an important burial site in ancient Egypt. So maybe the prophet is saying that you will be carried off into exile and swallowed up forever in death and Sheol. Maybe that's what he's saying. Maybe the message is that this exile is not going to be short. It is going to be as long as death. Certainly, it is a morbid reference. It's a way of emphasizing the seriousness of the coming discipline. On that, all parties are agreed. As for the nettles and thorns, that seems to be a poetic way of saying that the land and their wealth will be despoiled. Remember, this oracle was spoken at a harvest festival. The prophet is saying... Things may look green and ripe now, but the party is over. Exile and judgment are coming, and all that is green and gold will soon be rot and spoil. Verse 7. The days of punishment have come. 
the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. In essence, the job of the prophet is to make sure that people see and understand the theological realities behind their geopolitical tragedies. Don't think that this whole Assyria disaster happens just because you made a wrong turn, politically speaking. You didn't lose a game of risk. You offended a holy God. Days of punishment are coming, and Israel will know it. Verse 7 goes on to say, The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. Now, these are probably the most complicated words in the chapter to understand. Who is the speaker here? Is is this something Hosea is saying? As in, the false prophets of Israel are fools. The so-called spiritual men are insane. They themselves are a punishment from God because of your great iniquity. That's one way that these words have been interpreted. And, and it certainly could be. The, the Apostle Paul says something very similar to that in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12. He says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Let me read that again. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So there, Paul says that God sends people strong delusions and false prophetic leaders in order to further condemn people who do not believe the truth, but rather have pleasure in unrighteousness. So obviously, God does this sort of thing. Paul says that he does this sort of thing, and it sounds exactly what Hosea might be saying in Hosea 9.7. So that's a, that's a live option. The other option is that Hosea is recording here the reaction of the people of Israel to his oracle. They are saying, the prophet Hosea is a fool. He's a lunatic. In essence, they are so sinful that they can no longer recognize the voice of God when it hits them straight between the eyes with a shovel. Now, either of those interpretations work. Either one could be correct. But scholars differ here, so I will leave it to you to decide. Verse 8. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. Now, of course, how you understand verse 7 will affect how you understand verse 8. If you think that Hosea is talking about the false prophets in Israel, then he is saying that in contrast to their behavior and conduct, a prophet is supposed to warn the people of impending danger. Yet, everything these prophets, these false prophets have said, is a snare to the people and an offense to God. If you understand verse 7 as being the people's response to Hosea's oracle, then Hosea is saying here that he is fine with taking a few arrows from the crowd. It comes with the territory. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 12, that all those who speak for God will be persecuted. In this interpretation, Hosea is saying that he is simply doing what prophets do and experiencing what prophets generally experience, hatred from those in charge of the house of the Lord. 
Verse 9, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. The days of Gibeah, of course, refer back to the horrific events described at the end of the book of Judges. You remember the awful story of the weird Levite who had a concubine, weird fact number one. She left him, weird fact number two, and went home to her father. The Levite went to get her back. The dad kept delaying and delaying, possibly trying to get a second bride price out of the Levite. Finally, the Levite leaves with his concubine and his servant, and they stop for the night in Gibeah. No one offers them hospitality. Odd fact number three or four or five or however you're counting. The whole story is weird. Finally, an old man who didn't even live there took them in, but they were assaulted in the night by a group of men from the city. They want to rape the Levite and demand that he be put outside so they can have their way with him. In an act of horrific cowardice, the Levite shoves his concubine out through the door. She is ravaged, raped, and violated all throughout the night. In the morning, the Levite finds her seemingly dead upon the doorstep. He doesn't even check to see if she is actually dead. He just hoists her up onto his animal, takes her home, whereupon he chops her into little pieces and sends the pieces out to all the tribal leaders with a message calling for inquiry and vengeance against the city. The tribes assemble. There is a bungled war. There is vicious and over-enthusiastic recompense, followed by remorse, followed by a comical attempt to undo that which has been done. It is the biggest train wreck in the entire Old Testament. You're supposed to read the story and come to the conclusion that Israel needs a king sent from God. The book of Judges was originally written as an argument for the house of David. You're supposed to read Judges and say, we need a king sent from God, but not one from the tribe of Benjamin. The city of Gibeah was a city of the Benjamites. So we need a king sent from God, but not Saul. We need David. But of course, the northern tribes broke off from David. And so guess what? Here they are, back at Gibeah once again. Having thrown off what God provided, they will now be thrown off. They will go into grinding exile. That's what's being said here. Verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. The chapter divisions are kind of odd here. Chapter 9 should probably end at verse 9 because with verse 10, we enter into a section that goes all the way through to verse 11 of chapter 11. The section is built around four metaphors. Israel is compared to grapes in the wilderness, a luxurious vine, a heifer, and a child. In the rest of chapter 9, we look at this metaphor of grapes in the wilderness. Finding grapes in the wilderness would initially be cause for joy, but these grapes quickly turn sour. Israel has an inward bent toward idolatry. The mention of Baal Peor, of course, is a reference to the story in Numbers 25, 
when the people engaged in sexually explicit pagan worship for the first time. That opened a door. That changed things, and they became detestable like the thing they loved. Here's an important takeaway. We are changed by the things we love. If we love things and give ourselves to things that we ought not, we will be changed by that experience. Love is powerful. Sex is powerful. Therefore, guard your hearts, for out of it is the wellspring of life. Verse 11. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Here God is saying that their future generations will be cut off. That is the awful fact they must confront. God is leaving them. And that means that there will be no future, no children, no next generation. Verse 15. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Verse 15 is hard to translate and hard to hear, regardless of how you translate it. What does it mean that every evil of theirs is in Gilgal? There are two main suggestions offered, but one is more convincing than the other. The less convincing option is that it refers to a local pagan shrine. In essence, then, God is saying that it's their idolatrous worship that is at the root of this relational breakdown between he and them. That is possible. But why choose Gilgal and not Bethel or Dan? Those shrines were more primary and thus more obvious as symbols. The more likely explanation is that this reference to Gilgal is a reference to the inauguration of Saul as king over Israel. That was the root of the problem. When Israel rejected the kingship of God and wanted to be like the nations, it was the desire to be like the nations that was the very root and beginning of their ultimate apostasy. Now, that makes sense. That fits better with what the prophet has been saying in this chapter and in this verse. All their princes are rebels. God actually says that the political is driving the religious. You want to be like the nations. You want leaders like the nations. And that is what is driving you further and deeper into religious apostasy. The application of that thought, of that insight to our current dilemma ought to be fairly obvious. Verse 16, Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. When you decided that you did not want God to be Lord over you, 
you began a long decline that has now predictably come to its nadir. If you won't listen to God, then you will be rejected by God and you will be absorbed and obliterated by the nations. That's what the prophet is saying. We'll pick up the next three of these metaphors when we open chapter 10 of the book of Hosea in our next episode. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 